Welcome to the final episode of 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I can't believe it's already been a year since I first began interviewing amazing tech founders about their backgrounds. The purpose of the show was to uncover similarities between radically different entrepreneurs to see if there were patterns to look for that made someone inclined to start this rather risky journey. I'll be sharing the insights I gleaned on the 52 Founders blog next week, but more importantly, I've been fortunate to be the audience for amazing stories. Stories of hardship, excellence, luck, and perseverance. I'm so grateful to all the founders who gave me access into their lives. And for this final episode, I'm extremely excited to share the one I'm closest to, my older brother, Mickey. While it may be a cliche, he's the person I've looked up to my entire life. He's now the CEO of Atlas, the startup that's utilizing blockchain technology to connect communities across the world through mobile banking. Mickey has always been the grand visionary of our family, and it's been a privilege to watch him grow over the past few years in this role. And so with that, I'm thrilled for you all to hear the inspiration behind this podcast show from my brother, Mickey Costa. kind of interesting because you're my brother, but I'm going to treat you like you're a regular podcast host. So I'll be asking you about your childhood, which obviously I was there for a lot of it, <laughs> but just pretend like we are two strangers and you were just a regular founder, even though you are basically the inspiration for this whole show. So, Oh, that's so nice of you. Oh, all right. So thank you for being on my show today, Mickey Costa. Of course. I'm honored to be here. I've been following this uh, podcast and It's been a a great journey to watch you go on. Thanks, bro. It's cool to see (laughs) you too. All right. So let's talk about your company, Atlas, and start by telling us about what Atlas is and where the idea came from. Sure. So Atlas is a decentralized banking network. So what that means, and it's, it's tough to imagine, assuming we have a more Western audience here. So if you imagine... A developing country with uh, not much infrastructure, um, everything mass markets very informal, um, but everybody has a cell phone and nobody has a bank account. So what a decentralized banking network means in that kind of environment is someone you know, like very peer-to-peer, a person you know and trust, um, walks around every single blessed day and has these intimate interactions with you. Hey, how are you? How are your kids? How's your business? How's your husband? How's your wife? And they can take deposits for you to help you save for the things that matter in your life financially, help you have access to a loan, and basically be your door-to-door banker. And people, the end consumer, uh, this person I'm describing, uh, pays for that service. They'll give you a small fee for kind of showing up every day and putting the this, this sweat equity in. And it results in a, it's very much a share economy model. It results in a kind of market, you know, uh, economic dynamics rather, where, uh, you know, all those little small fees from each consumer for each month as a one-time monthly service fee add up to a great income for this person. So a lot of my, they're called agents, microbankers. They make about $150 off the bat. I have ones now making $800 a month. And your average person, like I'm in Ghana and Senegal and West Africa now, the average person's making maybe $60 to $80 a month in Senegal and about $80 to $100 a month in Ghana. So it's it's more than the average person and also more than any other entrepreneurial opportunity could afford them. So it's it's a great job. And obviously, it's, uh, it's just very communal. Now, what I'm wondering about this, we are from New York. 
How did you figure out that there's an opportunity in Africa when you're not from there? I get that question all the time. And I'm still working on a simple answer to it because I, I genuinely fell into it. I'll give you the short answer first. So the short answer is I had, I was working with blockchain technology like 2014, 2015. And a lot of people were at the same time like the universe was pushing me towards Africa really or, or just this concept of developing markets. So people, friends sending me um, videos on M-Pesa learning about that in Kenya. I had uh, African entrepreneurial friends I had kind of telling me the same thing. So um, th that's the, the short version, really. So I just kind of started to learn about it. I think I saw at a high level just a huge opportunity to scale M-Pesa, what they did in Kenya, and they, they themselves could not successfully scale into different markets. I saw a large opportunity to, to do that with blockchain technology and I didn't know the business model at the time, share economy for banking, but I just saw really hard. I have no idea what I'm doing, but it's possible. And I knew the opportunity would be ginormous, right? We live in this world of really cool tech verticals popping off at the same time. I think we're just starting the true golden age of technology, but this one's often overlooked. So you start to realize, wow, developing world, you know, and you realize, oh, that's 6 billion people, 2.5 billion adults. It's a huge market. It's banking, you know, even if they're poorer people, that's a huge economic opportunity. But because it's banking, I think I saw early the opportunity of what can happen beyond sending money peer to peer or doing stuff like that. So, and the longer answer now is what has driven my whole career is helping people, I guess, or it's having as big of an impact as I can on people in my short time on this earth. So, from a thesis level, it's very much about systems, networks. So, my first entrepreneurial endeavors were around politics for that reason. It wasn't I wasn't a political wonk. I just cared about systems. And I thought, okay, hey, if we can kind of be in charge of our democracy more, then we can be in control of the machine that can fix all the multitude of problems we have. That's worth spending my time on in a macro sense. So obviously, blockchain itself as a kind of decentralized democracy kind of technology was very alluring to me. And where I kind of stopped the politics stuff and segued into blockchain, eventually, you know, blockchain banking in the developing world was where it was with politics was I kind of stopped with like money's the problem, right? If we can control where the money comes from, which should be us, the people, we can kind of take back control of our, of our uh, politics. So the only thing that can distract me for that that I thought was bigger was money itself for not just Americans and politics, but just money period in general for a majority of the world population. So that's what kind of, at a high level, got me into the space. So, you know, you're based in New York, but you also spend significant time in Africa. What has it been like growing a startup in New York City versus other locales? Like, I know that you did Techstars London. Did you ever consider staying there? Did you ever consider moving to the Valley? I thought about it, but uh, no. And I think the real answer there, or the, the real question is kind of, what has it been like to do a startup in, in West Africa? Sure. Um, and before I answer that, I think I'll say the, the best thing we did was realize that we had to live there to figure it out. And to, when we got there, to be sponges and admit with that we knew nothing, right? This is, this goes beyond the normal great advice of listen to customers early and all that good stuff. And we made mistakes, by the way. So when we first were ideating on this, I'll never forget it. It's like October 15, we're in New York. A lot of the tech stars, people that became our early stage employees. And we're thinking of how do we do mobile money in the blockchain, smartphone to smartphone, Uber app kind of thing for 
requesting service of money and we got it all wrong we had like we, had, we hadn't been there so we went there that was the best thing we did and we just listened and learned in the model i described earlier that we have is very much one that exists ubiquitously throughout ghana so you know that was the best thing we did was just really spend time talking to users observing the market seeing what the problems were like across the board and and, and experimenting new model but back to your real question like what's was challenging knows that old kind of Frank Sinatra adage, I think, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Um, with startups, if you can make it in Africa, you can make it anywhere. Because I'm going there, I already have the access to capital from like the Tim Drapers of the world. So I'm already, you know, in a better spot than most as far as access to trying a really hard thing. And I have money down there. And it's still hard. Like, you know, I'm paying all the bills and the power cuts with the generator. The water goes out when you're showering. I mean, nothing works. And Everyone has to live there in this forced survivalist mentality of like, it's like that fear of your gasoline running out. That's like that for everything you do, airtime, everything, credit, everything's prepaid credit as you go. You can't get a monthly subscription to a cell phone service or cable or electricity or anything. So there's some days when all of a sudden a perfect storm happens and like you're running out of gas and you have no credit in your phone and every ATM's not working, and you're out there in the field and like a rainstorm trying to talk to a user to figure out stuff. And those were the early days. And if you can kind of work through those things as a team, which is the way to do it, you can make it happen. But it's just a lot of pain points. Like all the infrastructure, digital logistic things we take for granted are, don't exist over there. But everyone has a cell phone. Yeah, on like a user level, everyone has a feature phone, not a smartphone. Yeah. yeah. But like things like 4G and data, for example, internet on your phone are like just coming there now in 2017, 2016, 15, and just in select cities. So again, the infrastructure is missing. There's no addresses. You ask mm-hmm. a person informally, you have an informal meeting with like a community leader. And it's like, meet me over here by this ne- next to this junction over there. And you get used to it. Um, you know, I was getting pop- cops would pull me over as a white guy trying to get a $5 bribe out of me. So you just start to learn how to navigate those things by living there. I look back now and it doesn't seem too arduous, but it definitely is more difficult than like a Silicon Valley bubble, to be sure. Yeah, I mean, I think there are challenges that are unique to your business as well being there. I think why would you add more risk unless you have to? But for you, right, why would you not be in there is also a risk. So it's really interesting to hear about. And I think the, uh, the bulk of this podcast over the last year has been trying to figure out why people choose entrepreneurship as a career when it's a pretty risky career. I mean, there's a lot of better options you can take that are safer. Mm -hmm. And so we're gonna now focus on you and and you were part of the inspiration for me wanting to do this, wondering you know, why people become entrepreneurs. And so for our listeners, even though I already know this, but where (laughs) did you grow up? Where are you from? I grew up in the suburbs of New York. I grew up in Northern Westchester at first, more of a blue collar atmosphere called Yorktown Heights. Classic story of, uh, you know, both parents working very hard to give a better future for their kids. And they were hustling a lot. So I saw that kind of grit. And as they did a little bit better economically, we moved closer to a better school district that, you know, Armonk. That's where I grew up. Very bubbly, right? I mean, very much a, a bubble environment that, yeah. you know, when you're 18, you realize the world's a much bigger place. But uh, yeah, that's where we grew up. Yeah, very bubbly indeed. But I, I think, well, you know, we'll, we'll leave it about you. I'll, I'll keep myself out of it. <laughs> so what did your parents, our mom and dad, what do they do for a living? Dad is a tax attorney, has been his whole life. So he did a partner at Ernst & Young and then even got into more structured finance and ended up his career at Deutsche Bank. A mom, as you know, 
had a really, really cool creative career. Like she was, you know, I always look at her and she could have been someone on SNL. She's really like a, quite the talent. Yeah. And I think dad's creative, but a bit, she's like a bit more creative, I think sometimes. And mom was, she was in the movie business, right? So she was helping to distribute films internationally, having like dinners with Arnold Schwarzenegger's. And then she even, I think, worked for DeLorean. It's kind of like working for Tesla back in the day. Not that I think Elon Musk is much cooler than DeLorean was. It was she did that. And then they decided as a, like a parental you know, partnership unit that when they had kids that dad was making more money, he would make the money. And mom became a you know, full-time mom. As you know, raised us like she was the one playing basketball with me every day, you know, quizzing me on math every night when I'm seven, always around. And then now, as you know, since I think I was 18, she started doing real estate and I'm so proud of her. She's doing a great job. And, you know, that's how, you know, I met my co-founder, James, is because our, both our moms did real estate and our mom together. So when you were younger, and I don't know the answer to this, actually, what did you want to be when you grew up originally? You don't know. That makes me so sad. What? Well, we were like, you know, so five, it, we weren't really talking it, it, about this. Yeah, it didn't come up in these like existential conversations yeah, when exactly. you're five and eight. So I know the answer. That's a short one. Uh, marine biologist. Really? I wanted to be a marine biologist so bad. I think it was because... Why? You know, from a mom's side of the family, we grew up with old movies and I'd be watching stuff like Captain's Courageous or what's the <laughs> one with uh, Captain Nemo, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah. And I think it was about like, you're, you're a kid, you dream. And I felt like the ocean was this endless world I wanted to discover. It was so interesting to me. It was something so beautiful about, about it. Like, I love the color blue. I don't know how that relates to this, but I found that so just interesting and so that's what I wanted to be when I grew up but then as I got older like I it went from that to like at 10 to like unequivocally knowing I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up and I was not one of those people like maybe you talk to James where I wanted to be an entrepreneur when I was 12 not at all like mm -hmm. I had no idea I was very directionless for a long time so then, I mean, speed up to like 18, I didn't know what I wanted to do. But that was the age I think I knew very early, more than most of my peers that I knew. I wanted to do something really important and big, again, that could help a lot of people. And I had an idea for a TV show when I was 18 called The Candidate. And I thought of yeah. um, where I wanted to have access for anyone to become president. So it's 2003. Yeah. It's yeah. like before, you know, I think I, you're, you're, you know, when I was older... As an American, I grew up so proud of the, the pillars of our democracy and you get older and you realize pretty quickly that a lot of them aren't that true. And uh, it frustrated me and it really bothered me. Like there's this patriotic vein that was hit where I was like, this is re egregiously ridiculous. So I was trying to do that and trying to talk to dad's lawyer, copyright, trademark friends, like, can I copyright an idea, which you can't. <laughs> trying to hustle and see, can I pitch this to someone? And so at that age, I knew that. But then I went, fast forward, I went to college at Boulder. I was a history major, uh, nearly a philosophy minor, and just absorbing, again, these big picture macro ideas and trying to look for patterns about how to make <laughs> change happen. And I uh, was an open option major for two years, uh, so I wouldn't commit to anything. Finally landed on history because that's why I ended up taking so many classes. And, and, and then, then I think for me, it became a part of also... It wasn't just like, I want to change the world. It was also like, I didn't want to be trapped as an American that we were fortunate enough to grow up in a kind of up the Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid enough because of generational hard work before us. 
that I was like, I don't want to be like just a lawyer, doctor, business person and, and live in a nice suburb and have a house and play it safe. Like to me, that was the scariest thing ever. But you did go to law school. I did. We'll get to that. I did go to law school, which I'm glad I did. But to me, like the biggest risk was not taking the risk. I knew that very early. I'd have nightmares. My girlfriend living me at the time would tell me I'd wake up in like sweats being like, I want to be an independent contractor and I want to do something creative. And, and I didn't have any talents. I wasn't like good at guitar or writing screenplays, but I just knew I had to do something and try to do something different. So I created internally this pressure to try to figure out what that was, but I gave myself time to figure it out. And that's a good segue to law school. I looked at law school as a way to continue to buy more time to figure out what I practically wanted to go for um, while still working on kind of those muscles of critical thinking and pattern recognition and and knowing that it would never be a bad thing foundationally, you can't take education away from someone. And so I enjoyed law school, but in reality, it has bought me more time. I was a late bloomer. So now I'm like out of law school 27. And it was during law school I committed to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget it because law school is like 24 seven job. And I was still applying to business, startup business plan competitions. I didn't know anything technically. I didn't know anything at all. Wouldn't make it past the first round. But I started to take the time to like, write down my ideas on paper and some are really dumb and then try to make that into like a business plan. And those were the early days when I started to really go towards like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And when I got out of law school, passed the bar in New York, I was like, just a hundred percent, like I'm going to go for it. And at that point it was just like clearly politics. Yeah. But when we were growing up, what were you outside of school then? If you weren't focused on in school, what were you doing outside of school for fun? What were you focused on? I was just like a normal American teenager. Like I honestly, being cool, being like being socially accepted, having fun with friends, there's nothing too profound there to be honest. And so we talked, you mentioned it before about grit and we've talked about it on my podcast show. That's the topic of grit that comes up over and over again. Mm -hmm. How do you think that you've built up grit over the years? You will build up grit organically by not quitting. So there have been so many dark moments in you feel like to start, how am I ever going to get money? How am I going to figure this out? There are times when you do get money, how many, I'm running out of money, right? There's this, it's it's such an emo- emotional roller coaster ride. I know that's kind of cliche at this point, but it is so true. How you build it up is if you really care about what you're, you're driving passion for what you're doing to take that entrepreneur, entrepreneurial leap, you just find a way to keep going. I mean, I had a moment the other day, actually, that was, I reflected personally, a little micro appreciation moment. This is like the lab... Five days ago, I was at this hotel in New York City in Tribeca, and I'm there meeting a really high-powered friend from Africa who's a great, great guy I'm close with, and then I met with the head of investment for uh, Alibaba. And I look back five years ago in that same exact place. It was the first time I ever did anything networking-wise. And me and James were in a garage, and we looked up like New York tech scene. We knew nothing. I saw there was this thing called New York Tech Meetup. And they were having a demo day there. And I just, the tickets are sold out to demo day. And I go, I'm going to go there to network with people before and after. And I knew nothing about pitching myself or what I was working on. I was socially nervous in that kind of environment. And for me, it was a big moment because to reflect on, because I went there, I had no access. I didn't understand how to do anything as a person. I had no access to anything. A year later, actually, talk about grit. I emailed, I found who the head of New York Tech Meetup was, but I emailed her every month to present New York Tech Meetup. I thought if we could do that, when you're younger, I don't know, as an entrepreneur, you're like, oh, 
some silver bullet could happen. Like maybe like the media will pick us up and we'll just get money. Like something could happen because you have no idea how to get from A to B. But I emailed her relentlessly every day, every month for a year. And then finally one month people canceled and she said, you want to present? And I went and presented. And that was a year into the journey. A year after that, you know, I'm lost. How do I network thing? And then five years later, I'm back and I have access to like Alibaba wants to talk to me. And, and, you're, and I'm not nervous anymore, right? I'm very comfortable in myself and what I'm pitching and confident. And, you know, it's been a you know, hockey stick curve in that regard. And you need grit to get there. And as you're going through it, it will beget you more grit. Yes, I think those experiences create grit. But I also think it's already there. Like, you know, some people would give up. And, and it is a lot easier to give up. And so the whole point of this podcast that I've been realizing is that there are earlier experiences in life that, tell you not to quit or examples in your life to not to quit. And, and that's kind of what I was getting at more. Mm. So like why, when you were a young kid, you know, why did you know not to quit when you were older? Where does that come from? As you know, it was a summary about me when I was a kid. I was such a procrastinator as a kid. I was like the kid that was pretty smart, but would hand in an A paper three weeks late and get a C or would get an A in the test without studying and get a B in the class because for the 20% homework, I did not hand it in. And I would create such an effort to kind of get out of having to do work. Like I procrastinated a lot and didn't like to do structured educational work. And I remember I was like 12, I started doing that. So that's when, I don't know when it was, like sixth, seventh grade, those pressures happened. At the same time, dad's career was taken off and we just moved from Yorktown to Armonk. I remember we walked into the master, there's a one, a master bedroom in my parents' house with tiled floors, a jacuzzi. And I'm like, holy crap, like we're rich now. And, and, and all of a sudden at the same time, like grades were mattering. I went from getting A's, I got my first C because I didn't hand in a storybook assignment in English. It was stupid. And I was crying in front of mom. Dad wasn't home yet. And I was just bursting to tears in front of mom about all the pressure I felt and and I said, I'm so scared of being a failure. I'm so scared of not being successful as dad. I'm so scared of one day not being able to make money to take care of myself. I'm 12 years old. And we were lucky. Like Our parents never created that dynamic for me at all. I created it for myself. And I think there was this fear of failure somehow when I was really young. But I still procrastinated for a good like eight more years, right? <laughs> but as far as I can recollect psychologically, I think that was a, a moment for me. Fear of failure yeah, translating to yeah. not wanting to quit. Yeah, and this is different now than wanting to help people and change systems, which is like the other half. There was also this personal ego-based thing where I was like, I don't want to fail. So yeah, I guess I just I created sua sponte, this uh, pressure on myself on my own and at a young age. I don't know why. So then what do you think has surprised you most about being an entrepreneur? I mean, it's such, it's such a positive experience. Like the personal growth one. I think I made this... this quintessential mistake when I was 18 to 22 I spent a lot of time questioning who am I why am I here and all these philosophy classes and I thought like because I did that and most of my peers didn't you know again ego-based I'm ahead of the curve I got it figured out it's time to stop soul searching um, and do stuff in life like be a, a person of action right I read a lot of Hamlet and I was like I don't want to be Hamlet uh, as a protagonist I was so obsessed with philosophy, I got to the point where I was like, I, I don't want to be a professor because I'll sit here almost depressed my whole life because I'll, I'll never know these things. I have to live my life regardless of how, who we are and how we got here. So anyway, long story short, 
I thought my personal growth was done. And I think entrepreneurship forced me to realize as a person, personal growth never should end. Yeah. And it shouldn't be something like flossing. It should be something you enjoy. So I've had, and I hope I keep growing even more exponentially, but I've had huge personal growth the last five years. And then the people I've met. I look back now, I never would have thought I'd be doing a banking startup with blockchain in Africa. And we're having Thanksgiving yesterday. I have Daya, who's from Nigeria, who's just a dear friend and a great human being. Mm-hmm. I have Jose, who's from Spain. I have you know, James, who's become a you know, brother, a co-founder through it all with me. And our families are so close. I have mm-hmm. Oneki from Czech Republic. And those are the people here. On this journey, you can't do it alone. So all those connections, when you finally meet like your Tim Draper, whoever, and beyond that, it's it's this function of people paying it forward and hopefully you know the universe conspiring to help you if you listen a bit. So there's there's literally four hundred or more people that have like Magat Wade, my advisor from Senegal that I met in Guatemala doing the politics thing. So the grit got me to Guatemala. Mm-hmm. Uh, through James's oh, yeah. Teal Fellow. Oh, a lot of the story starts in Guatemala and the people yeah. I, I met there. And that was the first time I didn't, I didn't study abroad. It was the first time I saw what an emerging market looks like. And you see a 70-year-old woman with her granddaughter walking down a hill with 80 pounds of coffee beans in her head. Yeah, It's the people. I mean, and now I'm, I'm meeting and talking to users in like Senegal or Ghana and connecting with them and on a human level. And it feels so good. It feels so great. And I never saw that kind of stuff coming, and I feel, you know, pretty blessed. So, where do you think, you know, before we end with our fun questions, mm-hmm. I'll ask you where? What is your hope for Atlas in the next five years? What's the big grand vision? It will sound ridiculously um, grand, grand, <laughs> almost delusionally, delusionally grand. So, one, a decentralized banking network for the world's unbanked. If you make that happen, that's huge. But for me, it's what that unlocks, right? Like, I want to go from just a decentralized bank to taking a lot of fundamental fundamental African communal structures and tapping into those that exist throughout the world, which is a great thing, and then bringing those back to the West eventually so that now it's, a, it's the swarth of humanity can get to a place where through blockchain technology and, and Atlas as a facilitator can have a world where we we each co-own everything. So you go from financial inclusion and financial access for those that need it most to wealth inclusion, to everyone be, being able to be co-creators in life. You know, the world's one big blank canvas. And if we're given the tools and, and empowered properly, we as a collective of, of smart and loving individuals can really paint something beautiful. So that's what I want to help facilitate so it gets a lot bigger than banking and into what money is for i want one day atlas to be a place where you know whether it's branded or not we help facilitate the building of every school and hospital in ghana and that was paid for and co-owned by the people and they vote on who runs it and they also pay and use it and and that same methodology could apply to here and why don't we own our own bank together and it's this idea of conscious capitalism i'm a big believer what motivates me is the collective, this utilitarian values of maximizing happiness and minimizing suffering for the greater good of the whole. But I'm a big believer in how you get there is about celebrating and invigorating this idea of self-reliance and individuality and free market incentives. That's why I also love blockchain. I, I, I love free market incentives to try to get to that macro change. So if you mix those two things together, 
Atlas can be something that can redefine the new age of capitalism, right? So, and just take us a little bit further, I think. Not that that's the end game and the perfect system, but yeah, I would like Atlas to, to do that. I know it's kind of vague, but... No, I think that's great. I think those visions should be grand. And what I've always loved about you is that you're always this big thinker and you see things before they're happening. I remember you told me to buy Bitcoin back in like 20, 2011. And you're like, there's this new crazy thing out. I'm going to buy you a Bitcoin as a joke. And I was like, what am I ever going to use it for? Yeah. And now it's, you know. Too bad I never actually bought you 8400 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's $8,400. No, but it's like you see these bigger macro trends. And I think that's what is needed as a visionary. So it's great to hear. And so we'll end with my final Final fun question. So mm. in the short version, what is the best? <laughs> I'm not good at that. You know that. I'm not good at that. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, that's such a good question. Oh my God. Probably for me. <laughs> the best piece of advice. It's tough. I'm going to leave out a lot of good answers, but it'll be from dad. It's something I still haven't learned to do yet. And I think at this moment in my life, I have to learn to do it for myself and for Atlas and you know for everything for me. I'll call it getting straight A's and having fun. Dad was such a thoughtful dad and they didn't know how to deal with me when I was you know, uh, not doing well in school and procrastinating. And he bought me a book and put it by my table side and I have it in, in my bedroom here and uh, still have never read it. And it's called How to Get Straight A's and Have Fun. And for you me, still have never read it? I still, still haven't, I'm a real <laughs> son of a bitch. Still haven't read it, but for me, and maybe that's why I still don't get it. For me, what that means as a concept is you can feel so impassioned by Atlas you know, I, I can feel impassioned by Atlas and what I'm doing. I feel like I'm on my path and I feel more certain than ever that I have the tip of the spear right and the back end of it. What I'm doing day to day is an application and what the whole macro vision is and I'm on the path. But I am still, I still, I smoke cigarettes. I don't work out. I, I treat myself like garbage. I don't take enough time to, as important, like family is so important to me and love is so important to me. And, and it's taking time to to build those things. And it can't, again, the straight isn't that fun part is not spreading your bandwidth out even thinner so things are like an effort like flossing. It's a dynamic where they're all integral and, and you enjoy doing it. Um, and for personally, again, it's maybe not being so hard on myself and having these moments of micro appreciations. Like I'm, I'm really bad at changing my habits. Like I, I know meditating is good and I, I know like stopping and pausing is good, but I'm my mind moves so quick and uh, it's the New Yorker thing or just me. And again, I'm not there yet. It sounds like you really hate flossing. It's the one you keep bringing up, right? <laughs> I don't, I don't floss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I mean that book though, the title sounds so formulaic and I think I never liked personally is meditation or, or whatever. I never like when people project things. I think you have to figure out what works for you. You know, and for me, it's running. Couldn't agree more. It's It's got to be like, I've tried meditating. I don't stick with it. The one thing I've stuck with my whole life is running. I just, it's my yoga. It's like how I meditate. And I think like, you can't read a book called How to Get Straight A's. And also, why should that matter to everyone? It's not a formula. You should, yeah, I, I feel like it should be like, figure out how to make your life work for you. It's it's a misnomer of sorts. I, I agree with what you're saying. I think for me, when it comes to like philosophy or religion, like I just believe you have to figure out your own your own customized version of that based mm -hmm. upon your life experiences. And so, yeah, I mean, that can't be formulaic. You can't say meditation's good or whatever, Bikram, or the, the hot yoga. It's not that cookie cutter simple. You're missing the point then. One yeah. is missing the point then. I know, I know enough to know I don't, you know, I don't know things I need to learn and I need to keep growing. Um, 
and I'm not there yet. I think there's, you can get a lot of good advice in life. And I like to think of it like you can get it in your head and you can feel it in your heart. But that moment when you feel it, take it in and it becomes part of you and you start changing, that's the moment where the head and the heart meet. And what I'm admitting now, it's not where it needs to be for me yet. You know, if it was like, for example, in a measurable way, I wouldn't smoke cigarettes, yeah. right? but I do. So I know in my head it's, a, it's the wrong thing to do. I know in my heart it's the wrong thing to do, but it, they haven't like, you know, the synapses haven't clicked yet. So um, I think that's true. Again, forget smoking or loving oneself or taking time for micro appreciation. I think that's true of a lot of concepts in life, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still, it's, it's a, you know, it's a journey. It's the journey. It's the it's journey, the man. It's, it's the, the journey. It's not the destination. Yeah. I'm like, no, destination. Destination. <laughs> Met- metrics also matter, guys. But uh, So yeah. let's move on to the next question. What's another African or New York City startup that you really love? I really love Andela. I love their thesis of human capital is everything. Yeah. Right? This whole thing, we're talk- talking about personal growth. And um, I think that's beautiful. Um, and I also like that we're... I feel like our visions may be similar. It's about enabling people to have the freedom to become co-creators, right? If they're in charge yeah. of enough systems that their lives are better, if they are, you know, what they're doing, given the, they're very smart, raw piece of clay, and they're kind of pun intended coded up to get paid a lot more money. Like that's so awesome. Yeah. Um, I think what they're doing is phenomenal. It happens to be in Africa. I, I think they'll scale beyond the continent. And Africa and New York. Yeah, and they're, they're like us in that sense. But I, I think they're great. And I was by their offices the other day. Yeah, they they have a great culture, it seems. Really good founding team. And yeah. I think they've done a great job. So I, I have a lot of respect for them. I do too. And so finally, if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? I would love to talk to Elon Musk. I know you probably why? get that half the time. I do get that half the time. I like that he's motivated by moving the ball forward for humanity. Right, like I'm not the kind of founder that I don't get interested by how nanotechnology works or AI works. I care about what that can do for people's lives to make us better, passing on a brighter torch than we received. And that's what I care about. So I feel like we might have that in common. And I'm in awe of like how he does five things at once. And not that he has it right. You can see when you read optically, like, Family life's not so great, so I don't think he's figured out the quit smoking, get straight isn't that a fun thing yet. Um, so I don't, I don't blindly, ID, um, you know, he's not like a god to me. Um, but I would love to talk to him. Founders of a religion might might be cool. I think I, I've, I I respect a lot the ability to like inspire people and start a movement. So I, I think found, no, no, I don't say religion. It's like you know, leaders. It could be like MLK. It could be I, I love Thoreau. I would love to talk to a lot of the philosophers I read. I would have loved to talk to them. They're not founders per se, maybe. Founders of a movement, founders of of a school of thought. Kind of, yeah. I find that super interesting. I like that. Mm. Well, Mickey Costa, thank you for being on my show. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. I'm truly honored that I'm I'm the last one you did. Save the best for last. (laughs) You went and (laughs) sing. But I think... They don't know how weird our family is. We can't sing yet. We're so so weird. So weird. Same. Same. (laughs) um no chris just real quick um i'm so proud of you we talk about grit too like you've always been smarter than me i don't want to measure us together but like but let's let's do that um (laughs) but you've always been smarter than me and 
worked so harder than true. me. And that's to, definitely true. That, that is definitely <laughs> true. But to see this level of grit, like this is such a smart life hack because you are authentically looking for pattern recognition, what I value, right? And what drives a person. It's so interesting. And through that, you have met so many people and you've had to go out and like hustle, like reminds me of my <laughs> days where I knew nobody. I'm cold calling senators' offices to be like, come on my crowdfunding platform. Like, who are you? I was an idiot to think they'd come on. And it's worked for you. You have managed, like logistics in life suck. And you've managed to line up what? interesting, awesome people every week <laughs> and then edit stuff. Like you don't have a background in like doing this stuff. And your voice is great. You're cooler than Diane that Reem. that manly voice, I no, guess. No, it's from... like the new, it's a younger Diane Reem. Um, <laughs> I love NPR. So like, I, I love it. I'm so proud of you. And I, you. Uh, I love you so much. And I'm glad we're both in the same space. And I love you too, Kyo. Doing uh, things that make we're us both, both happy. both in New York again. Finally. I'm glad yeah. you're back here now. No, I, I want to say also, I guess it's the ending. Thank you for everyone that has been on the show. It's been an absolute privilege. Yes, for the pattern recognition, but more so giving people a platform to share their story mm-hmm. and to know that long after I'm dead and well maybe not because once I start stop paying the Google invoice bill maybe my <laughs> website will be taken down but maybe somewhere there will be an archive of these frank and brief but honest conversations and I think the world could always use a little bit more about where people are coming from and, and trying to understand one another so authentic sharing thank you for being on my show for the fun time All right, that is a wrap on 52 Founders. Thank you for listening, and it's been quite a year. Be sure to check out 52founders.com for my final wrap-up blog post next week about everything I've learned. And follow me on Twitter at YesIt'sMeChrissy because I will, of course, be doing another podcast probably in 2018, and you won't want to miss that. So be sure to stay up to date. Otherwise, thank you for tuning in. And to all my entrepreneurs, it's been an absolute privilege having you on the show. And thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in each week to hear these amazing stories. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you in 2018.